Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Alva. I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. On today's episode, we discuss the looming winter of discontent... And you ask us, why don't we discuss conservative politics in terms of left and right? So we're heading into maybe a new period of politics in that the pandemic is still with us, but there are some new themes emerging. There's been talk of an autumn of discontent or a winter of discontent with gas shortages, the cut to universal credit or the end to the universal credit uplift, various other things. Anush, you've been writing about this this perfect storm as it looks, which as well as spelling quite a difficult winter for a lot of people is going to be the next crisis really that the government has to deal with. Yeah, I think it's interesting that even though Boris Johnson's been in New York, the main questions that he's been asked are about the sort of brewing consumer crisis or even a cost of living crisis that's happening back at home. And this is because of those factors that that you mentioned. We've known for a long time that the government wants to remove that £20 a week uplift to universal credit that it introduced at the beginning of the pandemic to help people through. And that's supposed to come in at the beginning of October. The furlough scheme's running out at the end of September, which means that a lot of jobs that have artificially kept on ice won't, won't exist anymore. And energy prices are going up because of the gas shortage, which means that hundreds of thousands of people's bills could go up over winter, which is obviously when you need your gas the most. So all of these different factors are combining to threaten the government with a crisis that lots of people are going to notice. Okay, and Christmas was so miserable last year, this could be even worse. There could be food shortages because of the need for CO2 in the way that some foods are processed. When you have food shortages, that's when people really start to panic and start to notice that things aren't being run efficiently and start to feel like the government isn't protecting them. So something that I've heard is that in the cabinet office, they've been discussing some polling from Tony Blair's first term, which showed that the first time Labour's popularity dipped below the Tories in that time was in 2000 when there were fuel shortages. So that's apparently something that conservative politicians in government are particularly concerned about. It could be a real hit to Boris Johnson's popularity. And of course, 
a big political problem for them is that there are a lot of Conservative MPs and people on the Conservative side who have been concerned about the universal credit cut for some time and have been trying to persuade the government not to do it. Ian Duncan Smith tried to table an, an amendment earlier this week and it was rejected. Now they those rebels or would-be rebels feel like they're at the end of the parliamentary road and what they can get in terms of reversing that cut, but they're trying to persuade them to do other things, maybe changing the taper rate of how much you're allowed to earn before your universal credit is reduced, for example. So it's still up in the air, but the government voices are insisting that this cut is going to come in. And I can't, <laughs> I've been speaking to a lot of people who would be directly affected by this, and I actually really can't bring across on this podcast how much of an impact that losing £20 a week is going to have for people. I was interviewing someone earlier today who was basically saying that it would mean that she would no longer be able to take her daughter to nursery because she goes on the bus to take her daughter to the nursery, which means that she can't do the course that she has to do to claim her universal credit without being sanctioned. And someone else was saying they wouldn't be able to afford their daughter's uniform. Her daughter had managed to get into a grammar school. This was in West Belfast, actually. And she won't be able to afford the uniform for her daughter anymore, which means her fear is eventually the daughter will have to leave that great school that she got into. These are the kind of choices that people are going to have to make. And if their energy bills go up as well, they won't be able to heat their homes and also afford to eat, which is a very grim situation. And I'd be really interested to hear from you two, actually, what, you know, has this hit home among government ministers yet? And Boris Johnson's said, oh, it's temporary. We're coming out of the pandemic restrictions. It's a bit like everyone switching the kettle on after a TV programme ends. So you get that surge in demand for energy. That's what's happening. That's why there's such a sort of blockage in terms of the supply chain. But that sounds very glib to me. The thing which is unique about this Conservative government, as opposed to the two we've we've had over the last, yeah, the the last decade, the May one and the Cameron one, isn't the question of does the government know or does the government understand feels harder to answer because I think at a departmental level, the DWP and the Treasury have been at loggerheads over this mm. this cut, with the DWP saying look, one year look, this is going to have really bad effects, and it will it's it's not only that the like the talking point of oh, the best way is work is not true because most people are in work. Actually, the £20 is painful regardless of whether or not you are claiming the job seeker chapter of UC or you're claiming the tax credits, I'm in work but I'm not paid enough to make ends meet chapter. But it's actually even more acutely painful if you are working. This cut's going to be really horrible for the people who experience it. But in terms of the politics of it, it's particularly acute among a type of voter I think is going to be quite sympathetic in the minds of most voters. When you talk to a lot of Conservative MPs who remember the fallout of the 2016 budget, which was a much smaller cut, right? Yeah, a much smaller, both in terms of the total amount, but as an overnight cut also, it was even smaller. They are often going, this is going to be awful, this is going to be even worse. And I think similarly, if you talk to someone in the, yeah, talk to anyone in the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, they basically go, OK, yeah, look, the problem is partly that the, the world has unlocked and there's a huge spike in gas demand and it's partly that Russia is going, we will give you the gas very slowly and maybe that will encourage like those frightful Europeans to give us our Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Yeah, it's partly about artificial scarcity, but it is also, right, because the gamble of energy, of the energy market is basically, let's imagine I'm an energy processor and I basically say to Alva, OK, I'll give you the energy at £20 a unit. And my hope is that by the time she turns on like her faucet six months later, the energy price only costs me £10. And because that very much is not what's happening, these providers are going to the wall. Now, that won't mean that anyone, when they turn their lights on, they're not going to get a we're closed sign on their like smart meter or whatever. But 
they will be passed on to other providers who, as soon as they can, as soon as these government bridging loans are over, they will jack up their prices to reclaim it. And I think so you talk to individual civil servants, individual ministers, individual SPADs who have crossed that problem, and they go... This is going to be bad. Now you talk to someone in the Treasury and they go like, yeah, the inflation, we're a bit worried about it. But then you talk to the government as a whole and you're like, so are you aware that taken together, this is quite a big problem and you should probably therefore be thinking maybe we should U-turn on the... Because obviously like they can't... There are ways you could spread the pain around with the energy market. But like they have fewer options with the energy market stuff and they have fewer options with the inflation stuff directly. But the thing they can control, of course, is the is to not end the uplift. Yeah. And I think there is... I think it's one of those things where yeah, there are lots and lots of people who I think will perfectly reasonably be able to say in their memoirs, including some people who do actually work in Downing Street... I did say this would be a problem. <laughs> I did worry about it quite a lot. It really reminds me of, like, oh God, I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and remember his name. But one of Margaret Thatcher's uh, spads talking about the, the poll tax, mm. and he was saying, I kept saying to the Department of the Environment, okay, so people who have never received a bill in their lives are going to receive a community charge. Could you please tell me how much this will be? And I think, well, that's, I'm not saying it will be that bad politically as the poll tax. And, the point about poll tax moments is no one expects them till they've happened. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's – I imagine that the people in my job were having similar conversations with people around government where there were lots of people working on the policy, lots of conservatives who were like, mm, this could be a bit difficult. And But the overall structure of government's like, we're going to be in for 10 years. No surrender. Conservatives forever. And, yeah, OK, they, they could be right. We shouldn't forget them. the conservatives were in power for close to seven, 10 years after the poll tax. But I do think it is going to be quite – a painful moment for the country and probably therefore quite a painful moment for the government. And they're presenting quite a a united front on it publicly in terms of that uplift. But I think it's funny, it's maybe not the right word, but I I think there have been some revealing moments where actually the, the worries that a lot of senior people have privately have just been quite obvious. I think if you know what to look for, like Therese Coffey, even before the, the gas shortages and all of these other worries about soaring energy bills and so on, when she was doing a media round defending the uplift... I think in between the lines, she made it quite clear that this wasn't her policy in that there was this great moment. It was, I think it was Martha Carney on the Today programme of just a good line of questioning. She put some quite tough internal government or sort of independent body analysis to her, which I think indicated like how many people were going to be pushed into poverty because of the end to this uplift. And she asked Rez Coffey if she had seen the analysis and she said that she hadn't. And I think Martha Carney began to ask something else and then was like, hang on, why haven't you seen this? And there was just a great moment from Therese Coffey where she was a bit like the Chancellor and the Business Secretary have have really been leading on this. So I'm sure that they have seen the analysis. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought, Therese Coffey, I think she, like lots of politicians in that kind of a job, is often unfairly tarred with the brush of being stupid or whatever because of the role that, she and other politicians on bo- in both parties like her have to play where they do the morning broadcast round on really difficult days and have to eat rubbish for their team. She normally is very good at, I think, taking one for the team, but I just thought that was very revealing that actually she wasn't prepared to defend analysis that bad. And also, I mean... I'm sure that it was a good line and a revealing moment because it was also true and she wouldn't have said that otherwise. But I, I just thought that was a, a brief moment where 
despite this outward unity on this, there's so much disquiet, I think, in the in the Tory ranks. That's such an interesting point, because actually every single work and pension secretary before her since 2010, in, in the Conservative government since 2010, opposed this cut and have publicly said that and written to the Chancellor. So you'd assume that someone in her position who knows how universal credit works and has been at the forefront of actually quite successfully using it to help people during the pandemic will also be of the same opinion. So that's really interesting. And also, I think what we forget with this sort of it could be a crisis in winter thing is that actually we have already had a summer of discontent. There's been shortages because of the shortage of lorry drivers that we have. And so prices have been going up and restaurants have been closing altogether and staff are really demoralised and exhausted. And while they say salaries and, and wages are going up and there's vacancies and stuff because of this, it doesn't directly translate into people's day to day lives that they can easily get a well paid job now because, of course, these jobs have to work around people's lifestyles and and they have to live near them and they have to be able to access them. Working as a lorry driver is really hard. The shifts um, are very strange hours. I was speaking to a lorry driver yesterday whose shifts are from 1am to 4pm or something and to even get to that shift he has to drive an hour from where he lives. That cannot suit everyone who is seeking work and it's really difficult work and this guy he had a 40% pay rise overnight in, in the summer because of the need for lorry drivers and he's still plans to leave definitely at the end of this month because it's so difficult. We already have started seeing these themes, these sort of supply chain themes sneaking into people's day-to-day lives. So it's, it's started already. And I think it's telling that the government hasn't managed to get a handle on it yet. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously, I imagine that most of next week's podcast, we will talk about the Labour Party. But yeah, the solution... Yeah, the solution to the individual problems in the supply chain are just to pay people more. But of course, that will result in higher prices, yeah. right? Like the solution to the CO2 problem in, you know, packaging, slaughterhouses, will just be to add a little bit of a little bit of, of extra, a couple of pennies here and there on, you know, your Coca-Cola, your chicken nuggets, et cetera, et cetera. But that stuff starts to be felt quite acutely. And seeing as essentially, I was about to say essentially everything the Labour Party is going to say and do in terms of its policies and its tax on the Conservatives are going to now be refracted through essentially, I imagine they're not going to call it cost of living because they'll feel kind of a weird cringe about being quite that obviously Ed Miliband Mark II. But essentially, right, it, it, is, it is going to be that, that, that is going to be their big theme. And I just imagine from a, I say I cannot imagine, I am at this point quite literally just speaking word for word what a worried Conservative MP texted me yesterday. They're just like, look, they said, I can't imagine a worse backdrop for us for, yeah, for this job stuff. They said, which, you know, in the summer they said, you know, it's like Labour announced it and everyone went like, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Everyone who's looked at the policy goes, we probably shouldn't do this. And it is interesting. Yeah, the kind of coded, it's one of those things where I'm yet to hear a minister on air defending it who who you haven't felt is basically doing the, my family needs to know that I'm safe and unharmed. (laughs) And you just think, probably probably if that's where the party feels politically about it now, is this, yeah, like, this is going to be quite painful for the country and therefore presumably quite painful for them i also imagine that because none of this because i think very few of this these this pain will have been felt by a conservative party conference i think the thing which would be worrying me if i were concerned about the future of the conservative party politically in the short term is the images from the conference yeah because like labor's conference can be dominated by infighting and again we can get into that um 
next week when we will begin to yeah, that. Um, yeah, live. Yeah, but Labour's conference, I imagine, will will be yeah, quite a lot of infighting. Probably actually not a great conference in terms of media coverage for the Labour Party. I imagine, therefore, that the Conservative conference will be quite triumphant, quite peppy. Lots of people will be drinking and partying. And I just feel like the potential for like scenes from Conservative Party conference to be part of a photo montage and just to age in a way, live again in a slightly misleading meme that goes viral on mm, Facebook. Like while Rome burns. Yeah, I just feel it has a bit the potential to be the like, no more boom and bust or I'm so glad to announce that I can cut the bottom rape of tax, small voice by getting rid of the 10p tax rate. Yeah, I, I just, it just has that feel of a lack of moment where it's just this doesn't feel like it's good. Of course, as I say, we shouldn't forget they did stay in office for seven years after the poll tax. If you said to Margaret Thatcher it wasn't so bad, I think she'd probably disagree with you. (laughs) If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Don't forget, you can now listen to our special Germany Elects podcast series, which explores the campaign, the runners and riders, and the big issues ahead of Germany's election on September 26th. Available now on the World Review podcast feed and at newstatesman.com slash Germany. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Ask Us. Us. This is a question from Tom who asks, why isn't Johnson's reshuffle and the Conservative Parliamentary Party discussed and analysed in terms of its left and right wings in the way anything that happens in Labour would be? I I suppose my immediate answer to this question is it it kind of is. And, And when it isn't, it's because... So, for example... To cast back to reshuffles in the Conservative Party in the past, sorry, the 2018 Conservative reshuffle, right, the one where, like, she desperately wanted to keep Justine Greening, which she needed to move her because Theresa May was obsessed with this idea that what they needed to do was cut the headline rate of tuition fees from 9k to 7,500. And so she had to move Joe Johnson because he was opposed to it, move Justine Greening because he was opposed to it. She was able to find a job that Joe Johnson wanted in the government, although not wanted enough. And he didn't then go, actually, I hate this backstop. I I want to stay in the EU. I'm quitting. But she couldn't find anything that Justine Greening wanted. But we did, for example, at the time, I know because I wrote this at the time, go, look, this shows that Theresa May is still firmly on the left of the Conservative Party. You know, Damien Hines, can't remember who else came in that reshuffle. The only person who came in who was not of the sort of Conservative left and what we used to describe as Tory modernisers was Esther McVeigh. And that was only because they panicked because they unexpectedly lost 
Justine Greening and they needed to find a woman from somewhere. The reason, um, ditto with Cameron, we would talk all the time about him trying, you know, you know, oh, look, the reason why he has to have Owen Patterson, despite the fact that he hasn't exactly, I was about to say he hasn't torn up any trees at environment, which I suppose actually would be a good thing. But yeah, yeah, like the reason why he has to have Owen Patterson there is because he has to have someone from the right. The reason why he has to have Chris Grayling there is because he has to have someone from the right, etc., etc. The reason why we don't talk about it now is the same reason we don't talk about like the Labour reshuffle in the context of Blairites and Brownites. A lot has happened since then. It's not actually a particularly useful lens to understand divisions in the present Conservative Party, not least because the slight weirdness of the present Conservative Party is, I think if you were to, if you were to plot all of the Conservative cabinets of the last decade onto like the political compass... I don't think such an exercise would actually be that useful other than for the thing I'm about to say here. This cabinet would be to the right of the Cameron government, right? Like individually, if you polled them on various attitudes. But in terms of its political economy, it is it's yeah, a lot more right wing than it pretends to be. But this is this government is yeah, it's like when people go like, How's Lexit working out for you? And it's just the government's no longer trying to sell off every housing association social let. So actually, from that perspective, quite well. And so I think it's just not actually that useful, right? Is Nadine Dorries to the left or the right of Matt Hancock, it, 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 it's actually quite complex. But what's important is that she is someone who's seen as a deliverer who is really loyal to Boris Johnson, just as it was Chris Leslie to the left or the right of Jackie Smith. It's quite difficult. But, of course, Jackie Smith was there because she was a Blairite and Chris Leslie was there because he was a Brownite. And it's just, I think, and it's just not a particularly useful lens for understanding the Conservative Party for the moment. I can see how it might come back into vogue. When when the Boris Johnson project ends, whether that's 10 years, 10 weeks, I can see how it might be something we talk about again when we analyse their reshuffle. But I just think left-right is not actually that helpful as a lens to understand the Tory party at the present time. Yeah, yeah. I think it's useful to... A, a useful example is the Cameroon government. So the actual Cameroons in the Cameroon government, would you call them more left or more right than the current government? It's That sort of sums up why those kind of labels are so difficult because they were probably to the left or to the liberal left on sort of social issues or social attitudes, but to to the right in terms of how little they were prepared to spend on the state or how big they were prepared to see the state. Obviously, loads has happened in between as well. So you don't know whether or not that's fair. And maybe they would have done exactly the same thing had they been in power during a pandemic as Boris Johnson has done. So that that makes it really difficult. Then you have the Brexit factor as well, which I think in Labour is, is also particularly confusing in terms of left-right labels because Remainer doesn't necessarily equal left or equal liberal, really. There's that factor too. And in the Blair years, how did authoritarianism interact with tackling child poverty, for example? Like It's really difficult to tell whether you'd call someone left or right if those were the policies that they were representing. So I agree that the labels aren't very helpful. But I was trying to take this question in good faith because I don't think we throw around the left and right labels too carelessly. But actually, maybe it's helpful for readers who don't know who ex-minister is who has been reshuffled to this post to know whether or not they are seen as left or right within the Conservative Party and perhaps labels like One Nation, unless they're explained, aren't necessarily useful to the casual reader, maybe? I don't know. I know that we're not necessarily pitching our coverage to the casual reader and a lot of our readers know a great deal about politics and the fabric of British politics, but perhaps there is a way of using those labels that is enlightening in terms of the key figures in the Conservative Party today. Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting question because obviously my political career 
well, like my journalism career, political career, like, no, thank you, doesn't go back to the Cameron era. So in a way, I only have the Boris Johnson era and the very tail end of the May era to think about. And so my initial reaction to a question like this is that's just not really how people in the Conservative Party see themselves above and beyond anything else. And we cover them as they see themselves. Like, I think we cover the Labour Party, I think, in more ways than just whether people are on the left or on the right. But there is a very strong sense with basically anyone from the Labour Party that you speak to of where they position themselves within the party. You could actually do, like for school photos at school, with the tallest person at the top (laughs) and the tallest person at the bottom. I think you could literally do that with the PLP, just like line the Labour MPs up from furthest right to the furthest left. And they all have a rough sense of where they are in that. Whereas with this Conservative Parliamentary Party, I think... People, as you say, there are more axes involved because there are people's attitudes towards Brexit and then their attitudes towards spending and then their attitudes towards culture wars. Mm-hmm. And so you're working on, on on sort of four dimensions. And then it just means that you don't really hear people positioning themselves in that way. And even it's actually fundamental to the Boris Johnson project, isn't it, that... That's not really clear that on the one hand, it's about spending and investment and an end to austerity. On the other hand, you have the end to the universal credit uplift and lots of individual decisions that contradict that. The messaging on culture wars can be confusing, but also on liberal social issues. Like It's, it's just so much more complex that I don't think that... I'm trying to think of a good example from the recent reshuffle, like moving Gavin Williamson... And, and replacing him or promoting Nadim Zahawi. I don't think that in terms of left or right, it makes a massive difference to the direction of what Boris Johnson is planning on doing with his cabinet. I, I do think it, the interesting thing is there was a phase when people in the Labour, in the PLP, they, you know, there was that brief British when like people on the right of the Labour Party started being like, there's no such thing as the right of the Labour Party. And it's just like, OK, so is it your contention that you believe yourself not to be to the right of Jeremy Corbyn. And they're doing it, yeah, but that doesn't mean I'm on the right of the Labour Party. It's just like, I am never getting in a car with you. <laughs> like, yeah, like, <laughs> you you don't understand. Yeah, like, I have a coordination disorder and I understand you, what you just said is stupid. It's interesting because I think there was a period in the Cameron era where Conservatives did self-define in that way because the Cameron project defined itself in that way. Now, of course, the thing that I think is fascinating about the two electorally successful Conservative Prime Ministers we've had since 2010, is that the Cameron era was all about this guy going, I'm lovely, I'm liberal, I'm a Bowden dad, I'm tough but I'm fair. By the way, I've just dismantled local government as we know it, I've significantly cut back the state, I have overseen some really quite radical changes to how bits of our public services run themselves. So it was a government, and but that was it, was it was a project of the Tory left. If you think about Cameron's supporters club, right, early back as Theresa May did the no, we're the nasty party, we've got a change speech. Yeah, I always get my Nick Herberts and my Nick Hurds and my Nick Harveys. One, so one of them is a Lib Dem, one of them is the son of Douglas Hurd. I'm fairly certain it's Nick Hurd who's the son of Douglas Hurd. 
find mine at work listeners nick herbert one of those dudes yeah like it was it, yeah, it was a project that emanated on the tory left but actually its big policy successes were then it revivified and made thatcherism a successful reforming force again socially inclusive version of thatcherism and i think one of the reasons why cameron's kind of become a bit of a lost child almost in, in terms of the whole of the political class acts like his premiership i think his premiership was very bad for the country because I liked local government. I think the weird thing is Cameron in an odd way doesn't get his due as a transformative prime minister because because he fainted as being on the Tory left, delivered, ran against the Tory right who felt he wasn't one of them, who disliked him, was so keen to get rid of him at the first opportunity, he was continually having to find ways to cohabit with them. Now you have Boris Johnson's supporters club has always primarily been, despite the fact of course that Boris backed Ken Clark in 2001. He he was one of the I think he was one of the first 17. Yeah, it was the 17 people in the room when David Cameron launched his long shot campaign. Like in many ways, Boris Johnson actually has been a more committed Tory moderniser than David Cameron. But he but when David Cameron became leader of the opposition and he became mayor of London, he built a new supporters club for himself on the right. And loads of the people he's promoted and rewarded as long term loyalists are on the right. But he just basically put them in there and said. Yeah, like, you need to go and do this. Rishi Sunak is someone who George Osborne is is still incredibly proud of. In many ways, right, is like the final form of the Cameron product, right? Because he's someone who, yeah, his his background is like a classic conservative story of my parents, like, were were lower middle class. They worked really hard. They sent me to a really posh private school. And now I'm absolutely loaded. (laughs) I'm in the conservative cabinet and I went to Winchester, except he's Asian. And that is the success of the Cameron project. And in some ways, like lots of like, when you think about the people in the media who are in Rishi's supporters club, they're people who think of themselves on the Tory left. Who is the person who pulls this government furthest to the right on economic issues? It's Rishi Sunak. So mm. I, I think this thing is, I think these terms are always mainly about how they illuminate things for the reader. And I think the second you start using the term left and right to describe the Tory party's present, I think, I hope this is quite an interesting conversation for the listeners, but I think it becomes quite of a, a, a bit of a thicket very quickly. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues Anusha Kalian and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening and please leave us a review, ideally a nice one, and don't forget to subscribe. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.